Today on the Matt Wall Show, public health experts encourage gay men to continue having orgies and attending fetish festivals in spite of monkeypox. What exactly explains the incredible contrast between the monkeypox response and the COVID response? I have a few theories that I'll share. Also, reptilian demon spawn George Soros pledges to continue funding and facilitating the violent chaos in our cities. Also, more victims of alleged Sesame Street racism step forward and demand cash, of course. Gordon Ramsay faces backlash as TikTokers discover with horror where their food comes from. And our daily cancellation, even Beyonce, is not safe from the woke mob now. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, you've heard me talk a lot on this show about how important it is to get your kids away from the garbage that they're teaching in our public school systems, Marxism, socialism, critical race theory, the transgender, all of it. Now, there are a lot of ways you can protect your kids from these not-so-secret leftist attacks. You can homeschool. uh, You can get them involved in a religious community. You can get them the right books to read, like my best-selling children's book, Johnny the Walrus, by the way. These things are all great, and you should do them. But what if you couldn't? No one likes to talk about it, but uh, we will all eventually die quite a transition. That's just how life works. The end result is always the same. Some of us, however, uh, however, may die sooner than others, and we need to be prepared for that possibility because if we're not prepared, if we, if we haven't taken the necessary steps to shield our kids from the aggressive attacks and indoctrination attempts coming from the left, then we've left them completely unarmed and unprotected. That's why you should take five minutes to sit down tonight and write a will that will ensure your kids will be raised the way you would have intended in the event that something should happen to you. Lucky for you, my sponsor over at Epic Will makes it really easy to do that. Epic Will is an online platform that costs less than your next trip to the store. They can uh, set you up with a, a will in as little as five minutes, starting at just $119. Plus, you can save 10% when you go to epicwill.com and use code Walsh. Go to epicwill.com. Use my code Walsh today. Following in the footsteps of New York and Illinois, California has officially declared a state of emergency because of the monkeypox outbreak. Governor Newsom announced the move on Monday, explaining that the state of emergency would help facilitate the state's vaccination drive. As of now, he says there is far more demand for the monkeypox vaccine than there is supply. Um, Meanwhile, and this happened just this morning, President Biden is still, of course, battling through his 19th bout with covid But he still announced his uh, newly assembled monkeypox response team. Think of them as sort of like the Avengers, except for blisters. Robert Fenton of FEMA is now the national monkeypox coordinator. And Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis of the CDC will be uh, his deputy, his Robin to his Batman, I suppose. I know I'm mixing DC and Marvel. Forget about it. It's, um, It's a good thing, though, that we have both FEMA and the CDC on the case because both organizations are renowned for making every problem worse. And I think their vast experience with being totally incompetent and useless will be very important in this case, especially after all, making the problem worse, fanning the flames, dumping fuel on the fire would seem to be the overall sort of agreed upon strategy with respect to monkeypox. For example, in San Francisco, a day before the virus was declared a statewide emergency with, you know, the uh, lines for the vaccines still stretching around the corner, an annual gay fetish festival was still held as scheduled. Um, Your grandfather died alone in a nursing home because you weren't allowed to visit him due to COVID and your kids were locked out of school for a year. But gays in San Francisco were still having their sex festival, even amid an outbreak that specifically spreads through those sorts of events in that community. Uh, Local news outlet reports, quote, 
The annual Door Alley Festival happened Sunday in San Francisco's Soma neighborhood, despite growing concerns about the spread of monkeypox. The virus has been predominantly spreading among gay and bisexual men who make up the majority of the festival's attendees. The Leather and Fetish Fair draws thousands of people to San Francisco. The event comes after the city just uh, declared a public health emergency for monkeypox of the, as the virus continues to spread. I think the, vi- the risk is not zero, UCSF infectious disease specialist Dr. Peter Chin Hong said. I think if people are smart and know how monkeypox is spread, they can avoid it. Chin Hong says that the risk of contracting the virus at events like Door Alley is very low. However, that risk increases based on intimate interactions with others. Quote, prolonged skin-to-skin contact and possibly through sexual transmission, although skin-to-skin contact is the main thing, Chin Hong added. So that's large. In terms of medium, that will be prolonged kissing through saliva, but it requires hours. Um, hugging by itself, giving a high five, shaking somebody's hand is not going to result in transmission, he says. Oh, well, that's a relief. You know, if you're attending the gay fetish carnival to give high fives and um, shake people's hands, then you should be fine, he assures us. Anyway, the good news is that the event was also an educational opportunity. The report continues, Uh, Quote, event organizers say they're working with the city's public health department to provide on-site outreach and education. Despite precautions, Chin Hong expects to see more cases after this weekend. Quote, I expect a lot of activity next week in terms of alerts, Chin Hong says. So to review, this public health expert and infectious disease specialist says that the risk of contracting monkeypox at a fetish festival in a city that's a monkeypox hotspot is very low. And yet he anticipates, purely by coincidence, more virus um, activity directly after the event concludes. Now, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, which is a nonprofit, uh, which has worked closely with the city's public health department for decades, they issued their own sort of guide um, for this festival, which, which they are calling Douchey's Guide to Door, with, quote, some ideas to reduce your risk and still enjoy your favorite kink and fetish festival in San Francisco. The guide begins, quote, We're gearing up for an exciting return of our favorite street festival in San Francisco, Up Your Alley, a.k.a. Door Alley, where you'll get your fill of hot hairy daddies, hungry pigs, BDSM babes, and kinks of all kinds. Douchey's got some hot tips for a fun and filthy weekend, free of anxiety. We are then uh, given a variety of tips, and some of them I I can't even read out loud to you. And really, I shouldn't read any of them out loud. But here's one tip. It says, um, take a friend to the dungeon. Going to sex parties with people you know and planning on who you'll hook up with can be one way to reduce your risk if you're able to have open and honest conversations about monkeypox symptoms and possible exposures. So make sure to have open and honest conversations in the sex dungeon, they're saying. The guide also cautions that uh, you should perhaps, you know, think about avoiding the piles of gay men having sex with each other in dark back rooms and uh, instead stick to having orgies in well-lit areas. Also, if you appear to be breaking out in monkeypox rashes yourself, well, then, of course, the guide says, stay home, don't go. Just kidding. The AIDS Foundation recommends that you just cover your bumps with a Band-Aid and head out onto the town anyway. That's really what it says. You could actively be breaking out in monkeypox. Ah, just, you know, wear long sleeves, put some Band-Aids on. Go have, go have fun in the orgy. This is the sort of health advice that's being dispensed for monkeypox. 
any warnings or suggestions or policies more stringent than this would be shaming to the gay community. We can't have that. That's what uh, California legislator Scott Weiner, whose name will never stop being funny, recently explained on Twitter. He tweeted, quote, Lots of sex shaming of gay men around monkeypox. The same shaming we saw in the 1980s about HIV. Lecturing people not to have sex isn't a public health strategy. It didn't stop HIV. It made it worse, and it won't stop monkeypox. What will work is vaccination, testing, and education. Well, what about educating people about the fact that fetish festivals and orgies are disgusting and barbaric and are guaranteed to be vectors of all kinds of diseases? Can we educate people about that? No, we can't impart that sort of education. Because it's simply not a good public health strategy to tell gay men to make good health decisions and to encourage them to please refrain from recklessly spreading their bodily fluids all over town. Yet it was a good public health strategy to shut down all of society for a year or more. That was perfectly reasonable, practical, to tell people to stay in their homes and not go anywhere or do anything for months on end. That's reasonable, practical. But telling gay men just, hey, refrain from the orgies for a couple of weeks. In fact, I made this point in response to Wiener and some guy named Lane Wood, who has a blue check, so again, we know he's important, responded, tagging Twitter and Twitter CEO. He said to me, hey, Twitter safety, I know these are not easy calls to make, and technically Matt Walsh's tweets don't cross lines yet. I don't care that he has the views he does. He's allowed. However, we know this is paving the path to violence for his audience. So I didn't say anything wrong or incorrect, whether factually or morally, and I didn't violate any Twitter policies. But Lane wants me banned anyway because somehow the simple truths I'm discussing might pave the path to violence. This is, of course, a common view on the gay left. On Friday, a gay news site, LGBTQ Nation, published an article with the headline, Monkeypox is not a gay disease, but it is being painted that way worldwide. Touting the monkeypox virus as a gay disease endangers both queer and non-queer people. Now, to be perfectly clear about this, I don't think that monkeypox is a gay virus. I doubt it has any particular sexual orientation at all, though I haven't asked. I also don't know its pronouns. I wouldn't presume to assume. What I do know is that it's a disease which infects gay men nearly exclusively, nearly in part helped by the fact that gay men are nearly exclusively, nearly, the, the ones attending fetish festivals and orgies. That's what I do know. Two other important points I think should be made here. First, you, you notice how often LGBT people are endangered by the truth, according to the left. You know, they, they, they spread this ring of eggshells around LGBT people and demand that we walk gingerly on them all the time. There are a million fantasies, false impressions, delusions that we're supposed to keep intact. A million bubbles we must not burst. This is how the left wants us to see it anyway. But this approach not only places a ridiculous, unfair burden on all of us who are forbidden from speaking the basic truth, commanded constantly to lie, but it also harms the very people it's supposed to protect. The truth that we must shield LGBT people from are, um, these, these truths are always and in every case exactly the truths that they most need to hear. So who, who is the compassionate one, the loving one? 
Is it the guy who shouts to the person about to walk right off a cliff, attempting to warn him about the plunge ahead? Or is it the guy who tries to muffle the other guy, preventing him from issuing the warning? Which one is loving and compassionate? Second point, um, th- there are several reasons why gay people are allowed, rather encouraged actually, to continue running around town having sex with strangers during monkeypox while the rest of us were made to put our entire lives on hold during COVID. The most obvious reason is that gays are a protected privileged class and therefore they have different rules um, and they just they live by a different set of rules than the rest of us do. But there's something else too, and, and it's this. The left believes that no right is as sacred as the right to sexual gratification. Okay. In fact, by their doctrines, there really is no right other than the right to sexual gratification. That is, that's, that is every right boils down to this one, the right to be sexually satisfied. Every liberty is grounded in this. According to them, we have no right to do anything except satisfy ourselves sexually. This is, by their view, in their dreary, miserable vision of the world, um, this is what it is. There is no meaning to life other than the pursuit of temporary carnal pleasure. This is why they can't bear to abstain or tell others to abstain, even amid a monkeypox outbreak. A life without immediate, constant sexual satisfa- satisfaction is a life without meaning, a life without purpose. It is a kind of death. To tell people to control themselves sexually for even a day is to essentially kill them. That's the way the left looks at it. Because this right trumps everything. The right to be sexually satisfied certainly trumps any concern for safety or health, especially the safety and health of other people who themselves have no worth except so far as they can be used sexually and discarded. This is what lies at the heart of the public health approach to monkeypox and also, of course, at the heart of every other insane thing in our culture. Now let's get to our five headlines. Back to school season is uh, upon us, and while many American kids are excited to get back into the classroom, many others are not, because these children don't know where their meals will be coming from this semester. That's why Good Ranchers has made it uh, their mission to donate 100,000 high-quality meals to kids facing food insecurity and malnourishment this fall semester. For every box ordered through the month of August, Good Ranchers will donate a nutritious meal to a child in need. Help them reach their goal of 100,000 donated meals by ordering your box today at goodranchers.com Walsh. Good Ranchers is an award-winning food uh, delivery service that ships 100% American meat and also a seafood right to your door. Named the best food subscription service earlier this year, Good Ranchers is the fastest-growing meat company in America. They source only the best American farms, So you can trust that you're feeding your family with the highest possible quality every single day. Plus, right now, you can use my code Walsh to get $30 off your order plus free shipping. Your purchase furthers their mission to donate 100,000 high-quality meals to children in need. This is a great cause that we should all rally behind. So go to GoodRanchers.com slash Walsh today. Use my code Walsh when you place your order, and let's help these guys hit their goal. All right, before we continue, I wanted to tell you about a little bit of uh, personal news. Actually, not a little bit. It's it's, a... Big personal news. So one night in early June, um, this this past June, my wife walked into the living room and she was holding a little pink stick. And it was kind of the familiar 
setup to a scene that's played out a few times in our marriage. And, uh, you know, she, of course, told me that she was pregnant. Now, it might seem strange when I tell you that her pregnancy came as a shock to both of us because we are a married couple with four kids already. You would think that uh, by now we've kind of figured out how these things work. But in fact, 10 years ago, before our twins were born, we were told that it was unlikely we'd ever have children at all. That's what the doctors told us. And then we had the twins. And with each pregnancy, we were kind of told the same thing. Well, this is probably the last one. And then we had our, uh, our youngest daughter almost three years ago, and we were told the same thing. We, we, we started to believe it. You know, almost three years go by, and um, we kind of settled into this idea that, okay, we're going to have four kids. And we, we just, in fact, bought a car that fits our family of six perfectly, like the day before this news came down. And, um, you know, God had other plans, as is so often the case. So a couple weeks later, my wife went for an ultrasound, and uh, I stayed with the kids. And she came out of the appointment with a, a mysterious look on her face, and she handed me the ultrasound picture. And I looked at it, and uh, sure enough, you know, as expected, there was the little circle, which is our, our baby. And right next to that one, another little circle, because there's another baby, and we're having twins again. We're having another set of twins, almost a decade, almost exactly a decade after the first set. Now we're going to give it another go. I'm going to be totally honest with you. There was a, you know, the reaction, it's, a, it's, there's a lot of, we've been, like I said, we've been through this before, but a lot of emotions come rushing in. A little bit of panic set in at first. I will admit that. I may have for a moment sort of doubled over and looked like someone catching his breath after a five mile run. This was just not on my radar at all. To use an online cliche that I hate, this wasn't on uh, my bingo card, let's just say. But, you know, life would be very boring if uh, you always got what you expected or what you planned for. The excitement in life and the joy of it, it comes from embracing the unexpected, um, adjusting your swing for the, for the curveballs, I guess. This is also the hallmark of true adulthood. So my wife and I, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to say we're ready because we learned from the first set of twins. You, you can never actually be ready to have twins. But we, we, we are ready to do what we aren't ready for, if that makes sense. And we're grateful and we're excited and, frankly, a little bit terrified. But all of that is part of, part of life. That's all, that's, all, that's all the joy of life. And the other good thing is that my wife and I are single-handedly staving off the population decline. We are, we, we've got this. We're taking control. We will get us all above replacement level. We'll do it. And I am also taking over the world with my progeny. So one step closer to my vision of a theocratic fascist dictatorship. If I can't, you know, if I can't get to that position through votes, then I'll just, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get there through sheer numbers. All right. Um, there's no stopping us now, I guess. All right, so let me, uh, let me go here first. Here's something heartwarming. It's uh, a news report out of Los Angeles about an attempted armed robbery of a convenience store. And uh, we'll play this clip for you. This is the, the local news report. Let's go ahead and play this. Strategically tucked behind the counter, Cope whipped out his hidden shotgun and blasted the suspect in the arm. 
As the man took off, another camera captured this. The suspects, after nearly leaving one of their own behind, sped off in a black BMW X3. Now, you notice how these people, they, uh, first of all, they almost always run when they encounter resistance. And I just love everything about that. Start shouting and screaming. It looks like there are three of them there. And they're all armed. And they get they get resistance and they start running away. They try to ditch the one guy and he manages to, to jump in. But helpfully, they've backed into the parking spot and they're showing their uh, their license plate right to the security camera. So that was very helpful and nice of them. But this is what you, you, you know, when you see these great videos of the would-be victims refusing to be victims, you, you almost always see this where the, the, uh, the predator, right, who has now become the prey, just collapses and runs away immediately. And why does that happen? It's, be, it's because they're, they're cowards. Um, it's also because they're not expecting resistance of any kind. They're not, resi- they're not expecting any sort of accountability at all. And that's thanks in large part to what's happening in these cities, especially with the Marxist DAs who refuse to prosecute and punish criminals. Many of those DAs installed with the help of George Soros, who uh, just this week wrote a defiant op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, doubling down and saying that he's not going to stop funding these DAs, no matter how much violence and chaos and death and destruction and misery and suffering is caused by all this. He's not going to stop. You know, he's going to keep doing it because those things are, those are not bugs. Those are features. I mean, that's the point anyway. So of course he's going to continue. I'm going to read a little bit from this op-ed from um, George Soros. He says, Americans desperately need a more thoughtful discussion about our response to crime. People have had enough of the demagoguery and divisive partisan attacks that dominate the debate and obscure the issues. Like most of us, I'm concerned about crime. One of government's uh, most important roles is to ensure public safety. I've been involved in efforts to reform the criminal justice system for more than 30 years. For the more than 30 years, I have been a philanthropist. That's one way of putting putting it. Yet our system is rife with injustices that make us all less safe. The idea that we need to choose between justice and safety is false. They reinforce each other. If people trust the justice system, it will work. And if the justice system works, public safety will improve. We need to acknowledge that black people in the U.S. are five times as likely to be sent to jail as white people. That is an injustice that undermines our democracy. We spend $81 billion every year keeping around 2 million people in prisons and jails. We need to invest more in preventing crime with strategies that work, deploying mental health professionals in crisis situations, investing in youth job programs, and creating opportunities for uh, education behind bars. Yeah, that's what we really needed. And that scene there where the armed robbers come in, what what we what what he should have done, what that guy should have done, rather than shooting them, he should have uh, got on the horn right away with some mental health professionals, and maybe some, you know, uh, maybe some representatives of uh, job programs who can show up and say, well, the only reason you guys are doing this is because you don't have, you can't get a job, right? You're what was it that AOC said? You're hungry for bread. Maybe you have some baker show up with a loaf of bread. Here you go. Uh, a couple of points about this. First of all, it's only an injustice that black people are more likely to be sent to jail if black people aren't more likely to commit crimes that would put them in jail. So we hear this all the time 
that black people are, whatever the number is, four or five times more likely to go to jail. And this is just presented without any other context as clear evidence of racial injustice. But don't we need a little bit more information? Now, if black people and white people statistically as a group were equally as likely to commit violent crimes and were responsible for an equal proportion of violent crimes, and yet you discovered that one group was incarcerated far more often than the other, then absolutely, I would be the first to say, this is evidence that there's something uh, horribly wrong here, and it's probably evidence of racial injustice. But that's not what you find when you look at the numbers. The crime rate between white and black people would have to be the same in order for the incarceration rate to be unjust, but the crime rate is not the same. It's just simply not. And that's all. And that, you know, we can take this logic and extend it to the two million people who are in jail right now, white or black. Because that's the other thing we're always told, as George Soros does here. So we got two million people in jail. Clearly, that's that's too many. We shouldn't have that many people. Of course, they, you know, you notice they never tell us how many people they think should be in jail. In a, in a country of 300 and whatever, 50 million, going on 350 million uh, people, how many should be in jail in your mind? What, like 1,000? 10? What, what do you think is a reasonable number? What, what number are you going to pull arbitrarily out of your hat? But you've decided that 2 million is too many. Well, but that's only an, an example. That's only a symptom of over-incarceration if we are incarcerating people who are not dangerous criminals. So if society is generally peaceful and safe, but there's a bunch of people in prison, then maybe you might look at that and say, well, you know, what's going on? Do all these people really need to be in prison? But given that our societies are descending, uh, our society and our cities are descending ever further into violence and anarchy, the problem is clearly under-incarceration, not over-incarceration. That is quite obviously the problem. Because all you have to do is walk into any city and you're going to find that the streets are crawling with violent criminals who should be in jail and are not. So that is an under-incarceration problem. We've got 2 million people in jail. Um, that is a shocking number because it should be way higher than that. I don't know what the number should be. Okay, I'm not going to come up with arbitrary numbers, but certainly way higher. And my evidence is all the people in all these communities across America that are committing violent crimes and are not in prison. This is not what, what you know, what you hear from the other side on this, the, uh, the side that, that calls for criminal justice reform, which is another euphemism. I mean, I, I support criminal justice reform too. I just think that it should be reformed the other way. You know, it, it should be reformed in the direction of actually finding, detaining, punishing, and segregating from society dangerous criminals. That's what I, that's the kind of reform I would like to see. But the people who support so-called criminal justice reform in its, in, in, you know, uh, in its current state, this is not compassion. Okay, this is not concern for their fellow man. This is nihilism. This is disregard for human life. You know, George Soros is 6,000 years old, a billionaire, living, you know, he's, I think he's technically an American citizen. Um, I don't know how much time he actually spends in this country. 
but he's not living in these. He's certainly not. He's certainly not spending any time in these communities where these sorts of things are happening. He's not going anywhere near like a a, a convenience store in in uh, the bad parts of Los Angeles, which you know the, the whole part is the, all of Los Angeles is the bad part now. But he's not going anywhere near these a, a convenience store that might get robbed by three armed men. So it's really easy for him to sit back. It's the same for you know all the elected Democrats and. Almost everyone on the left who calls for this. They're, they're not in these communities where these things are happening. And they're totally morally dead inside. Because when you see all these crimes, and, and so often now they're caught on video. In fact, I just saw right before we went on the air, there's security camera footage of uh, some, some kids in what appears to be basically a suburban neighborhood at a lemonade stand were robbed at gunpoint at a lemonade stand. Now, again, that's, that's a symptom of the under-incarceration problem. But when you see that, you should be filled with rage, righteous rage and anger at the predators who are victimizing these people. That's the feeling you should have. If you immediately sympathize with the predator, then there's something wrong with you deeply. And certainly with George Soros, who is uh, just one of the worst human beings to have been born in the past two centuries. It's, there are a few people who have done more damage to human society than George Soros over the last 200 years, but it's, it's not a long list. Um, and he's pretty high up on that list. He's just a reptilian demon scumbag, this guy. And he's, uh, he lingers on. I think he's in his 90s now. Just more evidence that the uh, good die young, as the saying goes. All right, let's move to this. Some moments of cringe in the White House. Here's, uh, we'll just play this for you. Karen Jean Pear attempting to break the ice with uh, a little bit of humor. Doesn't go well, though. There was a video of him yesterday FaceTiming with the folks, the veterans camping out on Capitol Hill. We haven't seen anything from him today. Can you give us a sense of how he's doing um, with having to go back into isolation, I mean, is he you know, frustrated? Uh, and, and how is he dealing with yeah. being away from the First Lady for as long as he's been? Well, the day's still young. You never know. Uh, um, but um, look, the president. Well, that means she's <laughs> I'm just, just making a joke. Clearly, it was not funny. Uh, I will try harder next time to be more funny. Um, but. Um, uh, look, he is continuing to work from the residence, uh, and I just want to share, uh, as we all know, the president is fully vaccinated. He's fully, uh, he's double boosted. He was on treatment for Paxlovid. These people, they're, they're just, they're automatons. It was humor. I will attempt better humor in the future. My humorous overtures seem to have not had the desired effect. I will recalibrate. And then, of course, we're, we're assured that he's, well, he's been, he's, look, he, he gets vaccinated five times a day now and, uh, and continually gets COVID. But let's not draw any conclusions about the vaccine, obviously. Kamala Harris is always ready with the cringe herself. Here she is addressing the uh, recent flooding in Kentucky. And, and she says that, you know, there are, this could have been prevented. Flooding and rain could have been prevented, actually. Is it by building like a giant dome across the sky to stop the rain from falling on 
uh, on people. Well, well, let's find out. Go ahead. For years, our nation and many of us have discussed, have lamented, have talked about the threat of climate change. For years, we debated the potential impact that climate change could have on our communities, on our country, and our world. And today, we know the impact if folks weren't clear about it before. Just watch the evening news and see that the time for debate is long past. <laughs> climate change has become a climate crisis, and a threat has now become a reality. In recent days, deadly floods have swept through Missouri and Kentucky, washing away entire neighborhoods, leaving at least 35 dead, including babies, children. As has been reported, four children from one family. So the devastation is real. The harm is real. The impact is real. And we are witnessing it in real time. Hmm. Uh, yeah, the, the harm and devastation is real, that's, but that's the only bit of reality that we heard in those remarks. And I'm, I'm really concerned that on the right, when we hear something like what we just heard there, we don't react to it with the level of scorn and mockery and derision that it deserves. In fact, this is, this is a, a common problem on, on the right, I think. And some of it's understandable because you're constantly hearing so much insane, rambling nonsense that you get desensitized to it after a while. But, but um, no, they, when, when something is completely absurd and ridiculous, the first and most immediate response should be mockery. And, and that's what we should do. When we hear a, a politician claiming that legislation could have stopped the rain from falling. Okay, that's not just her point of view. This is not a, this is not a di differing, differing perspectives on an issue or anything like that. This is insane pagan nonsense. It, it would be no different if she were to have broke out into a rain dance right there on stage begging the rain gods to stop um, dumping water onto the land, it, 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 would be, it would be equally as absurd. In fact, maybe a little bit less so. Just think about what she's saying. Again, I know people are desensitized to it, but think about it, that we could pass a law that will stop it from raining. What? And, and not only that, by the way, but... Um, that the law will have this effect in her mind, like pretty, pretty, pretty quickly. Because what she's saying is, well, if only this law had been passed, you know, a month ago, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. Of course, never asked to explain that. So you've got step one, pass a law. Step two, question mark. Step three, it stops raining. Or we don't want it to stop raining completely, but it rains only just the amount that we need it to, and not any more than, than we need it to. 
and obviously they're never uh, required or, or put in a position where they have to grapple with the fact that all of these devastating weather events have been happening on the planet for billions of years, and they happened before man even walked the planet. And so that is reason enough why you can't just point to every devastating weather event and say that it's the result of man-caused climate change. Because that is to suggest that without so-called man-made climate change, none of this would be happening. But we know that's not true because it all did happen before there even was a human civilization. Which means, at best, some of this wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for us driving our SUVs around. Like, that's, that's as far as you can take the claim. But then how do you know which ones? Like, wh- which, which hurricanes, which tornadoes, which tsunamis, which floods? Which floods would have happened anyway, as opposed to the ones that would not have happened if not for, you know, our SUVs? Of course, that'd be, that's impossible to determine. So instead, they just take this giant blanket and cover it over everything. All right, this is from uh, NBC Philadelphia. It says, following a high-profile case of alleged racial discrimination against two black girls, SeaWorld is being sued for other alleged instances of pervasive and appalling discrimination against children at Sesame Place, Philadelphia. So, um, what, does SeaWorld own Sesame Place? I guess that's, okay, yeah, they do. So, uh, it says, the plaintiffs named in the lawsuit are Baltimore, Maryland residents Quentin Burns and his five-year-old daughter, who allege that... Um, former, four performers refused to engage with the girl and other black children during a meet and greet last month. The performers did readily engage with numerous white kids, according to the suit. William Murphy, one of the lawyers of the Burns family, says racism is horrible when it's perpetrated against adults, but it's in a separate category altogether of horror when it's perpetrated against kids who can't fight back and who have to struggle to understand how ugly it is and how it must be eliminated from every aspect of American life. The plaintiffs are seeking at least $25 million in damages from SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment, which owns Sesame Place, on behalf of all the black people who visited Sesame Place since July 27th, 2018. Oh, you got to love this. Well, you don't have to. I mean, really, you should hate it. But um, so, and, and this obviously harkens back to what we talked about last week or a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the the five-second video of two young black girls who were at a parade at Sesame Place, and we saw one of the, uh, ma- one of the Sesame, Sesame Street mascots for one of the characters walked by the girls. You know, because, of course, it, it's, it, at a parade, mascots never do. Ma- the normal thing at a, at a parade is that the mascot greets personally every single person in line, right? That's what, that's what usually happens, supposedly. And because they, uh, the mascot didn't notice these two girls— then that's obviously racism. And that means that there has to be sensitivity training and lawsuits and everything else. And now we've got someone jumping onto that bandwagon and saying, oh, I was at Sesame Place too, and, uh, and my daughter was, was ignored by some of the mascots. And so now this guy, he wants $25 million, he wants $25 million because his five-year-old daughter didn't get a high five from a few mascots. And he wants it on behalf of all the other black people who he just assumes were, were racially discriminated against. And so if you're you know, a black family that went to Sesame Place at any point since 2018, good news, you will get justice for the 
non-existent racial discrimination you suffered in the form of this one guy being made a millionaire. I'm sure that will assuage your, your anguish. It's uh, just out in the open. This is a out in the open scam, a con artist. And this is what you're able to do if you, uh, you know, if you have all the victim points lined up. And it's, it, it's not even something that, that needs to be explained. I mean, if, you, if you've ever been with little kids to any kind of event, theme park, parade, where there are mascots, you know that it is so incredibly common for the mascot to just walk by and not notice. And usually what happens, because, because they can't, the, the people in that mascot suit, they can't, you know, their, their, their field of vision is very, very small. That's why usually they're carted around by somebody else. You know, usually there's, there's a, a guide walking with them, pulling them by the hand. And um, they're getting swamped by all these little kids. It's 6,000 degrees inside that mascot suit. They're, swe- they're, they're dying of dehydration and heat exhaustion. And so they miss some of the kids. And normally when that happens and your, your, your child is like a little bit disappointed, oh, I wanted, to, you know, I wanted to say hi to whoever, Spider-Man. Oh, he didn't notice. It's okay. And then they get over it. Not now, though. No, now, uh, rather than telling your kid to cope with this minor disappointment, rather than helping them to cope with this minor disappointment, because that's a skill that kids need in life. That's one of the most important skills that human beings need to have in life. And if you want to be a functioning adult in the world, one of the most important skills is to cope with disappointment. And fortunately, um, as a parent, you are given many opportunities, many sort of small-scale, low-stakes opportunities to teach your kids that, uh, that skill. Because kids, they're very excitable, and they get very into everything that they're doing, and that's what's, that's so, what's so wonderful about childhood. And um, so if they don't get their way about something, they'll be very dejected for about 30 seconds. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to them, and then they move on. And in that 30 seconds, you have an opportunity as an adult to teach your kid, oh, okay, well, it didn't go exactly as you wanted. You wanted to say hello to Big Bird, and he didn't notice you, and that's okay. It's going to be fine. If you want your kid to be a functioning adult. But if you want your kid to be a professional victim, then no, you use all of those um, momentary disappointments as an opportunity to validate your, your young child's most unreasonable perceptions. And then you say, oh, 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 Big Bird didn't notice you. Well, you're right. This is devastating. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody. And, and they did it because you're black. You know that? They did it because they hate you because for your skin color. Big Bird hates you. He's racist. So that's what gets me about this. It's not, you know, trying to scam Sesame Place or SeaWorld out of $25 million. I, I don't care about that. Go ahead. You know, whatever. Um, but... The child abuse, the way you're abusing your child and trying to turn your child into exactly the kind of um, self-victimizing, self-obsessed parasite that you are, you know, that's what really gets me. That's what upsets me. All right, let's move to this. One last thing. Um, Story from NBC. It says, celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay is facing backlash on TikTok from some users after posting a video in which he appeared to select a lamb to slaughter for a meal. On Thursday, Ramsey posted a video of himself climbing into a pen of roughly 10 pristine white lamb. 
In the video, Ramsey rubs his hands together while repeatedly saying, yummy. And some people on TikTok were apparently very upset about this. First of all, I think we have that video. Can we play that? Which one's going in the oven first? You. Mmm. Oven time. All right, so you see that, and uh, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's a little bit weird, I admit. I mean, it's a little bit weird to baby talk your meal. Um, slightly strange, perhaps. I'm also not a chef. I mean, he's a chef, so this is just, he gets really into his meals, and so that's what he does. But aside from the commentary that he offers, uh, I think people should realize that this is where your food comes from. So the people on TikTok who are upset apparently are just learning where the meat that they eat comes from. I guess they thought that it just materializes at the supermarket. Just there's a fairy who comes by with a magic wand and just a little bit of fairy pixie dust and, oh, there it is. There's your lamb chop. No animals were hurt in the making of that lamb chop. No, the, the food that you eat comes from animals who are killed. And that is, in fact, what sustains probably your life, and it certainly sustains the lives of uh, billions of people on earth. But here's the good news. You know, because the, the argument against eating meat generally is that, at least the so-called sort of ethical argument against it, is that, um, that we're no better than animals. Like, we're, we're equal to them, so we have no right to consume them. But that argument cuts us against itself, so to speak, because, well, if we're no better than animals, this is exactly what animals do. They also eat each other. So that's just more justification for continuing to do what we're doing. I mean, either way, either we're equal to animals and no better than them, in which case, why should we hold ourselves to a, to a higher standard? Animals eat each other, feed off of each other, then we can too. Or we're superior to animals. Um, we are a, a, a superior species on a hierarchy, and so therefore we have every moral right to use them in this way. Either way, it comes back to enjoy your hamburger or your lamb chop, as the case may be. Let's get to the comment section. Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. Lady S says, remember that story Matt told of how he ate the chicken nuggets his wife wanted to save for their kids' lunch the next day? He ate it cold. Yep, he's president of the husbands eating the food the wife wanted to save for the kids' club. Oh, I, absolutely, I'm president of that club. I am a, I am a longtime member. I am a ranking member of that club. Um, to the point now where my wife doesn't even bother telling me, oh, no, we're saving that food for whatever. It's, it, look. I think it's fair. Is if the food's in the kitchen, if it's in the refrigerator, then it's fair game for, well, it's fair game for me anyway to eat. Um, Jesse says, on an episode where you mentioned both gambling and the wildly desperate, uh, disparate punishments issued by the NFL for different offenses, I'd like to point out that Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Calvin Ridley was suspended for the entire 22, uh, 2022 season for betting $1,500 on a game that didn't involve his team. That's a, that's a very good aspect of the story to bring up. So Deshaun Watson is accused by 26 women of sexual assault. 26 um, 
massage therapists of sexual assault, all telling strikingly similar stories. And he's going to get six games. And meanwhile, there was a wide receiver for the Atlanta Falcons who bet on some games. His team wasn't involved in the games. And, um, and he's suspended for the entire season. Yeah, I can't exactly make sense of that. And I did get a little bit of pushback from some people talking about this yesterday. Uh, I guess thinking that I was, you know, um, becoming a, a, a propagator of, of the Me Too movement because I was suggesting that 26 accusations against Deshaun Watson does count as some kind of evidence. Because it does. So when you say, well, there's no evidence against him. I mean, no, no, there is. I mean, 26 people accusing you of something is evidence. I'm not saying that it's um, it's decisive. I'm not saying that it's 100% bulletproof, but it is evidence. And when it comes to the kind of accusation being made, it's the only sort of evidence that could possibly exist. As I said yesterday, if he did sexually assault any of the 26 women who accuse him, there, there couldn't be any physical evidence of it based on what they're accusing him of doing. Unless they got, you know, security camera footage of it. But I don't think they have security cameras inside the room where they're doing the uh, massages. So if it happened, there's not going to be any physical evidence of it. The only evidence that could exist is accusations. And this is often the case, by the way, for these sorts of crimes when they're alleged. This this is what makes them so hard to uh, adjudicate. And this is one of the reasons why false accusations are so damaging. But you get to a certain point. You know, I think of it very similar to, uh, you know, it's like Michael Jackson. Uh, people still, there are still people to defend Michael Jackson. Even, even uh, long since in the grave, they still feel the need to defend his good name and say, oh, no, he, he never uh, molested any children. Yeah, but like through years of his life, for decades, this guy is accused by different children of, of, uh, of child molestation. At a certain point, you have to think like, are they all making it up? And if this is the kind of thing that can happen, like why doesn't this happen to anybody else? Most of us can live our lives and we're not going to have 26 women come out all at once and accuse us of sexual assault. And we're not going to have for decades at a time, different children coming out and making these kinds of horrible accusations. So you know, either it's that there's this conspiracy among dozens of people or this one individual is, in fact, a scumbag. Right? So with Deshaun Watson, somebody is lying. It's either him or 26 women. You just kind of got to play the numbers game after a while, in my mind. All right. Um, AMV Life says, when you take the emotional aspect away from listening to what Matt is saying in his discussion of the history of white slavery and the importance of integrating this understanding with the current curriculum, you can't help but agree with his reasoning. I learned something new today that shifted my understanding of the world I live in for the better, and that alone is exactly why the topic of history of white slavery should receive equal attention in regard to the moral blind spot of all of our ancestors' belief systems, as well as the aspects of those belief systems that we all agree should not be repeated. Um, yeah, and, and you know, the discussion about slavery, it, it began, as we talked yesterday, about the existence of white slaves, because in fact, white people were enslaved also. Um, but... This expands beyond that also. You know, what we really need to talk about is the entire institution of slavery that, that persisted for thousands of years. And that is actually, it, it's a very, um, 
interesting conversation and an important one. Like it's actually, it's a fascinating question, isn't it? How could it be? I mean, this, this thing that to all of us today is self, seems so self-evidently wrong. Nobody needs to explain to us why slavery is wrong. We don't need that explanation. We get it. To us, it's self-evident. It's intuitive. And yet for thousands of years, almost no one saw that there was anything wrong with it. And not only that, but, um, you know, it wasn't like slavery started as a germ of an idea and then spread to different civilizations from that one starting point. It, 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 civilizations that had never come in contact with each other, that were separated by oceans, that were different in so many ways, still had at least this one similarity of slavery. You know, when Europeans went to um, uh, went across the ocean to the to the New World, and they encountered these Indian civilizations, there had been no contact between the two at all. Um, it, a total, you know, it's it's in many ways, it's like two aliens from different planets meeting each other, except that they they both knew what slavery was. I mean, how is that? How could that have happened? Well, we can't talk about that because we're supposed to own, there's this one sliver of the conversation when it comes to slavery that we're supposed to be focused on. And that's the problem. You know, recently we celebrated the one-year anniversary of our podcast, Morning Wire. In this short period of time, it's become one of the top news podcasts. I suspect it's uh, because Morning Wire gives you all the news you need to know in 15 minutes or less without the manufactured outrage. New episodes are available every morning, seven days a week, and they cover the most important stories of the day. So check out Morning Wire on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Daily Wire Plus, or wherever you listen to podcasts now. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Last week, the most overrated musical artist in history released a new album. Uh, no, John Lennon did not rise from the grave. He is, after all, only the second most overrated artist in history. The crown belongs to the Queen Bee, Beyonce, whose mediocre talents cannot on their own even begin to explain the worshipful praise her every breath receives. Now, she's not a bad singer, exactly, and she is a relatively talented dancer, but there's nothing about her music, sound, or output that significantly differentiates her from any other pop star. Yet, music critics bow before her and recite psalms of thanksgiving. Sometimes they have to contort themselves into even more tortured shapes, however, as has been the case with her new album, Renaissance, which just came out last week. She released the first single, Break My Soul, a few weeks ago, and it sounds, well, like this. Now, on the one hand, it's inspiring that she could compose a hit single on an old Casio keyboard that she bought at a yard sale. But on the other hand, the song is just not very good. I mean, it sounds both retro and perfunctory, like a filler song you might have heard dropped into the middle of an Ace of Bass album in 1995. Now, it might make for some decent upbeat hold music, the kind of uh, thing that you, keeps your spirits up while waiting for the Comcast customer service agent to come back on the line and tell you that he can't fix whatever problem you're having with your service. But it's certainly not the sort of music any normal person would want to sit and listen to on purpose. And the whole album is apparently filled with stuff just like that, which you can tell based on the hideous pretzel-like shapes critics are assuming in order to give the record a positive review. I mean, they are desperate to find a way to positively review this thing. 
The Atlantic, for example, calls the song, or rather the whole album, um, a mess, says that the songs on the album clatter, wobble, and lurch, and derides the whole effort as indulgent, childish, exhausting, and ridiculous, and yet uses these adjectives in an overall positive review. The critic concludes, quote, but committing oneself to pleasure as fully as Beyonce has here takes defiance and guts and more deeply faith in the preciousness of one's own experience. Somehow, she has found a way to make messages of individual empowerment, which can be so trite in pop, jolt again. Plus, he notes the album is very gay, and so that earns it a five-star rating all on its own. But even a big gay album, even one produced by Beyonce, the queen of all creation, is not exempt from the woke mob. Beyonce's team this week had to release a statement and retroactively change one of the songs on the album after receiving intense backlash for the use of an ableist slur. As many outlets, including Yahoo, have reported, the song Heated off of the Renaissance album contains the slur spaz, which which, uh, Yahoo notes, quote, is a derogatory term for spastic diplegia, a form of cerebral palsy, which uh, makes it difficult for people to control some muscles. Because obviously, you know, when someone uses the word spaz, they're intending to refer to spastic diplegia. Indeed, they're intending to insult and demean everybody with the spa, with, with a spastic diplegia. This is obviously the meaning behind the word and why it must be denounced and renounced and erased from any book, film, or song where it occurs. Now, if this all sounds like deja vu to you, that's not because you're going insane. It's because the world is going insane. Because yes, if you recall, Lizzo, another once immaculate and sinless musical genius and poet, had to change one of her songs a couple of months ago because it also contained the word that we've just decided now is a slur. Now, what this shows us is that uh, wokeness itself is now the god. Beyonce and her ilk have been basically demoted. They are now merely priests and priestesses of, of the religion. They're not the gods themselves. All must bow before the woke altar and make their offerings. Virtue signaling is a requirement from which none are exempt. Now, this may seem like a positive development of sorts as it ensures that the people who promote this ideology will be forced to take their own medicine, but it's less positive when you realize that wokeness is mass hysteria now. It is just an avalanche of stupidity and insanity that nobody controls. That, to me, was the most salient and important point in the latest controversy where people are once again spazzing out over the stupidest imaginable thing. But then I went and listened to the portion of the song that contains this allegedly offensive lyric. My eardrums have yet to recover from the experience, and now yours will suffer the same fate, I'm afraid. Here it is. Listen. Go quick, fan me off, I'm hot, 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 like stolen Chanel, lock me up in jail. 
Now, when I hear lyrics like, mmm, yummy, yummy, yum, make that bummy heated, make a pretty girl talk that whiskey till I'm tipsy, glitter on my kitty, cool it down, 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 my pretty, bad, bad, make the bad, bad glitchy, fine, 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 fa, fine, fa, fine, fine, liberated living like we ain't got time, yada, yada, ya, yada, yada, ya, yada, yada, ya, bomb, bomb, ka, ka, spazzing on that ass, spaz on that ass, fan me quick girl, I need my glass. When I hear those lyrics, I am not especially offended by the word spaz. I can barely hear the word by the time we've made it to that part because I've been reduced to a nearly catatonic state. The idiocy in the song is so potent, so pure, so uncut that I have overdosed on it. This is medical grade stupidity. You can actually feel your head start to throb and burn as your brain cells self-immolate in protest. Listening to this on repeat for 30 minutes would have the same neurological effect as a lobotomy. That's a scientific fact. But even on just one brief listen, the song is dumb enough to provoke a full-fledged existential crisis, causing the listener to question the very purpose and meaning of human existence. It's the worst thing I've ever heard, and yet it's also indistinguishable from 95% of pop music. It all bleeds together into one putrid, toxic, malignant, cancerous lump. Now, it seems trite, I understand, to complain about dumb pop music. But that's only because we take for granted that most popular music will be aggressively, ear-bleedingly bad. But we really shouldn't take this for granted. It's a very modern predicament that most of our artists produce vulgar, inane, disgusting rubbish that is essentially the auditory equivalent of drinking stagnant water out of a trash can lid. It was not always this way. It wasn't. Artists through history have had varying degrees of talent and genius, of course, but they've all been artists, at least. They have strived historically to produce things that are beautiful and true and important. Artists have not historically been a class of wealthy, semi-literate, self-aggrandizing donkeys. This is a situation peculiar to the modern age. And like most things that are peculiar to our age, we assume that it's always been this way and will always remain this way. And so we don't react to it the way we should. And how should we react? Well, probably the most reasonable response to a song like that is to vomit all over yourself. But a slightly cleaner and more subtle reaction would be to recoil in disgust and to be offended, not in a petty, oversensitive kind of way, but in the deeper and, and, and more righteous sense of the term, offended by the vulgar stupidity and shamelessness of these pop industry parasites who wish to make our children dumber while feeding on their souls and their minds like some kind of brain-eating amoeba. Most of all, we should dispense with the notion that art and beauty are entirely subjective. They're not, right? As if the Sistine Chapel and a smiley face smeared in feces on the wall of a padded cell have equal artistic legitimacy. As if a sane person could be justified in preferring either one. No, far from subjective, beauty and art are transcendent. I mean, beauty is truth. It's eternal. To understand this fact is to take one of the most important red pills you can take. But you can't do that until you ditch all of this pop music garbage, starting with Beyonce, who is awful and stupid and talentless and terrible. And most especially today, she is canceled. 
And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Jeff Tomlin. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2022. The White House tries to spin record high gas prices into an accomplishment. Joe Biden abandons Taiwan to communist China and a January 6th-er gets sentenced to seven years in prison after his kid turns him in. Go check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.